right, good morning. morning. Suddenly there's a lot of space available here. In fact, the the first time I visited Timberline, I had an opportunity to share a message, and, and I shot a message over to Pastor Nick as a word of encouragement. One of the things I noted in the text message I sent to him is it was such an encouragement to me to see the swarm of children that left the room when it was time for for children's church. And so I'm so thankful that God has planted these families here at this place at this time, and it brings hope that there is another generation of men and women that are rising up in Christ. I think oftentimes we, we get caught up in this mentality of what a challenge it's going to be for my kids for this next generation, and yet it's one of the most opportune times for us to train them up because God is going to do some powerful things through these children. Well, we are taking a break from Hebrews this morning. Um, I've only been here three weeks now, and so I'll be rolling into the Hebrews series the next time that I come together. And so Pastor Nick sort of left a a, a blank slate for me and said, you know, preach on whatever you want to preach on. Um, And he said, you know, think of maybe things that you've preached recently and bring that to the table. And so I thought about bringing the subject of discipleship, maybe, um, the subject of worship, maybe. And I thought, what a better time than to bring the subject of considering meat sacrificed to idols. So when you eat meat sacrificed to idols, what are some things that you should consider? We're going to talk about those things this morning. I know it seems a little bit out of place, but we know that God's word is never void. There are no empty words in the Bible. And so it's going to be amazing, I think, what God is going to bring this morning. I have been hanging out with Pastor Nick these past few days. In fact, he brought a message to the NAB conference um, on Friday evening. And it was a powerful message. God had used him in powerful ways. He unpacked, believe it or not, the Trinity in just an hour, which is no easy task. And he focused his attention on the love of the Trinity. In fact, God, the Trinity, one God in three persons existing eternally. We just read that in the Apostles' Creed. The love of God was made manifest before we came into existence. And that was one of the things he pointed on. And then he went on to talk about creation and how that that is just a way for God to lay his love on us now, the Father loving the Son and loving us and providing to the Son the church. And there's this amazing thing that happens when we come together as a church. And he said in his message, there is no sweeter gathering than the saints. There is no sweeter gathering than the saints. God's people coming together to worship God who loves us. Amen. Well, this is one of the most topic-rich books in the Bible. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. And that the volume of topics in, in this book goes beyond any other book in the Bible. If you're looking for a way to apply your life in the Christian lifestyle, you don't have to look anywhere but 1 Corinthians, that letter. I mean, Paul was addressing an immense amount of topics, just one after the other after the other. And the way that this book came together is that there were people who were having issues in that church. And Paul had gotten word after years, and and so he's addressing that. And then they had many questions for Paul that they wanted answered as well. So on the one hand, he's addressing issues that he heard about from certain people, and on the other hand, he's answering questions from other people. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and and if you've been here for any length of time, you know that one of the things at Timberline is we value the Word of God. And so before we even get into the message, we want to stand for the reading of God's Word. So will you stand with me? for the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians, the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. 
This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many quote-unquote gods and many quote-unquote lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. And mark this, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This is the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you have such rich application for us in your word that there are no empty words in the Bible, that anything that we read has an important string attached to eternity. Lord, may the words that are read and spoken this morning be an offering to you, an opportunity to learn something new, to apply something new in our lives to those for whom Jesus Christ died. That there are people in here who have received the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, and as such, we've received not just freedom and liberties, but we've received the very love of God manifest in every single one of us, and it is by that love that we are to live. And may you be glorified, and may we be edified in your message this morning. Amen. I have a question for you. What is it that distinguishes the church from the rest of the world? I remember in the first church that I ever visited, this newborn child of God I'm coming into the church, and on my way out, there was this big placard on the, on, the, on the wall, and it said, the church has left the building. And so that, that resonated a lot with me, because oftentimes we associate the building as the church. I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to be among the church. But when we leave, that's not when church ends. In fact, that's when church begins for many of us, because it is the distinguishing characteristic of your life that is that which makes up the church. If anyone were to observe the church, right, not the building, but us, because we are the church, for some amount of time, I mean, just consider we're out there now in the world, what are some of the distinguishing characteristics that one might see or hear or witness in your life? What are those marks of Christianity? And what is it that sets the church apart from any other institution or cultural norm in people of this world? Well, Paul purposes to answer that question for us in this letter to the Corinthians, that the distinctiveness of the church would not be lost, but that she would be marked with holiness and grace and love. 
that they would see us as the very representation of Jesus Christ in this world, that we would be conformed to the very image of who Jesus is, and that we would remain distinct among God's people. Did you know that our distinctiveness actually helps people know who God is? I mean, it's one thing to go out there and and just share the word with people, but it is the distinctiveness of the church that helps people understand who God is. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So one of the ways that people understand who Jesus Christ is, is in the way that we love one another in the church, the way that we serve each other, the way that we love each other, the way that we meet each other's needs. As the onlookers of the world look at that, they they ask themselves the question, how is it that there is such amazing joy and love in Christ that people are sacrificing themselves for one another in Christ. And in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and mark this, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The Corinthian church had many problems that were plaguing that church. Not only were they drawing away from Christ, But because they didn't have an impact on the culture, they were drawing away from Christ. Rather, the culture had an impact on them, and this church was relying not on Christ, but on themselves. And so they weren't being set apart, they weren't standing out from the world, they were actually blending in with the very culture that was around them. And I tell you, that culture at that time, we're going to get into this, was no pretty sight. I mean, we think we're in a culture that was bad. The Corinthians were in a very bad place when it came to that culture. And it's not unlike our current day cultures, right? Where we don't have a grip on the culture nearly as much as the culture has a grip on us. And because the culture had a grip at this church in Corinth, there were some deep-rooted problems that Paul was going to have to address with these people. Okay, and now before I get into really the, the context of what was dealing with the meat, I want to talk a little bit about the city of Corinth because this is really important that we understand. I'm, I'm going to give you two aspects in, in the message this morning. There's exegesis, which is like we're going to pull out the original context, the culture. So we're going to, again, put ourselves in the culture of that time and understand what was the specific thing that they were dealing with. And then we're going we're gonna to ask ourselves the question, how does that apply to us in this age? Because I know that many of us don't ask the question, has this meat been sacrificed to idols? But there is such deep implications for us. The city of Corinth was situated on a four-mile stretch of land between, in southern central Greece, and it was between the Ionian Sea on the west and the Aegean Sea on the east. And Ephesus is just off the map, east of that map, and and out of view. And this city was geographically special because it was a two-port city, right? You've got one sea on one side, you've got the other sea on the other side. So you can imagine when you have these ships that are coming by with cargo, they want to be on both sides. So it makes for a very strategic place for ships. Its location for that reason became very multicultural. Cargo companies that were seeking to make way between the two seas, the Ionian Sea and the the, uh, Aegean Sea, would oftentimes put their ships on rollers because that four-mile stretch it was easier for them to get their boats over that four-mile stretch and just roll it across the land than it was to go around the treacherous sea all the way around. And so for that reason, it became a very um, a place where people really wanted to, to be in order to avoid um, those circumstances. And so it was a business intersection. It was a commercial hub. It was a place where celebrities traveled to. And there was an amphitheater there that could seat up to 20,000 people, and it became a very popular place for entertainment. Right, and, and the games that were there were the Isthmian games, 
And it was only second to the Olympian Games. You got the Olympian Games, which were huge for sports, and then you had the Isthmian Games, which were second to that. And so this city seems like a really great multicultural city. And it was not unlike the American melting pot, where a bunch of cultures came together in one place. And while it seemed like a great city to visit, it had its bad influences because in this city of Corinth, they were also known for their pagan roots. They were a polytheistic culture, and what I mean by that is they had a plurality of gods. There was a god for just about everything in that city. There were many temples that were dedicated to these quote-unquote false gods and goddesses, and it became a breeding ground for idolatry in that city. The most notable temple was the temple of Aphrodite. This is the goddess of love. Around 1,000 priestesses, okay, these are temple prostitutes, they did their business inside the temple of Aphrodite and around the city, and it attracted travelers far and wide. I mean, this city of Corinth was scandalous, and it was known as scandalous anymore. I mean, it was so bad, okay, that the pagan cities around Corinth would actually look at Corinth, and they created a verb to Corinthianize. You were not one who you wanted to be Corinthianized because what that meant is your morality sunk so low that you have now become associated with Corinth. I mean, imagine, right, in Lacey, you got cities like Seattle and Tacoma and, and these large cities around us, these pagan cities, and they look at Lacey and they say, are you one of those whom they Laceyanized? I mean, that would be insulting because on the one hand, they're immoral. And here they're calling us immoral. That, that is a new low. And this, is, this really gives you insight into the city because this was a place where many people were looking to satisfy their self-indulgence and to carry it out publicly. This city was crude. It was degenerate. It was obscene. It was coarse. It was vulgar. And it had all kinds of evil in this city. This is the city. I mean, listen to this. This is the city that Paul intentionally went to to present the gospel message. Okay, and the reason I want to pause here for just a moment because I've come across many people who are running away from Washington. They're running away from Washington because this, this, this state, they've just had enough of it. They've had enough of the immorality. They've had enough of the craziness going on. So they're finding places like Texas or Alabama or Idaho, and they're just running away. Well, the Scripture makes it very clear. You cannot run away from immorality in this world. We are exiles for Jesus Christ. This is not our home. Our home is eternal, but between now and the time that we're called to be with the Lord, we've got work to do, and the harvest in Washington is rich. It is rich. I mean, the image that comes to my mind is like there's this, there's this field of wheat, okay, and, and it's grown, and it's just ready to be picked. And so you've got all your friends surrounding this wheat. You're ready to, to reap of this harvest, and they go, I got to go. And you're just like, where are you going? I mean, the harvest is rich right here in Washington. And I'm not saying that God isn't going to use these brothers and sisters in Texas and Idaho and all these things, but I'm just saying you can't run away from these things. That our focus is not to be on trying to get to the place where I feel comfortable. The focus is to be uncomfortable for the sake of serving Jesus Christ and calling people into relationship because the grace that you've received, God has in store for other people to receive. And he wants to use you for that purpose. That is such an amazing privilege when you think about it. So he traveled there to hold high the torch of the gospel in a perverted generation. 
Paul came to the city, remember, he was preaching the word of God in the synagogue. This is not unlike Paul where he goes into the synagogue, he talks to the Jews first, and then he grabs those people and then he plants a church within the Gentile world. And this was a customary thing for him, and it's recorded in Acts chapter 18. And when the Jews of the synagogue heard him preaching that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, he's the one that the the, the scriptures have been speaking to all along, They reviled him, and they resisted him, and they were very hostile towards him. So Paul shook his garments off, and he said, Your blood be upon your own heads. He was ready to leave that city because that city was resisting the gospel so badly. That is until God spoke to him. Because it's recorded in Acts chapter 18 and verse 9 to 10. The Lord said to him, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. And listen, I have... Many people in that city. God had many people in that city. And I can just imagine Paul, who loves God, loves God's people. And when he heard those words, I have many people in that city, he must have fallen on his knees, excited about the thought that in this city, God had called people since before the foundation of the world was laid to be his. And Paul had the amazing opportunity to go in there and be a participant in all the things that God was doing. And this is another striking thing, okay? If you know anything about Paul, this man does not get afraid. Okay, this is the man who was stoned and thrown out of a city and left for dead, got up, just brushed himself off and ran right back into the city that just stoned him. I mean, this man is fearless. And if anybody else had said, don't be afraid, I would have said, you don't know Paul. But it was God who said, don't be afraid, which gives us amazing insight that even Paul, this fearless man, had certain fears, and God came to him and comforted him and said, I have many people in that city. From the offset, you get this tender love and care that God has for his people, that there are those who have been plucked out by God for his purposes and for his glory, people who have not yet confessed Jesus Christ located in this city of Corinth, they will be called out of darkness and death and decay and into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. God was determined to lavish his grace on this church. There are those who would eventually put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And look, each one of you in this room right now who has put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he feels the same way about you. There was a time where you did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. You were in darkness and in guilt and in shame, and you were doing whatever it took in order to earn favor with God. And none of that did anything for you, but God had a plan for you, and he plucked you out, and he made you his. You are his people. So Paul stayed there 18 months and courageously preached the gospel of Christ in this city. The awesome power of the gospel exploded in this city, and the hearts of those who were listening to Paul's teaching came to know him, and the church was, listen to this, planted in the unlikeliest place in the world, wasn't it? These Christians were former fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, pedophiles, thieves, drunkards, revilers. I mean, the the list just goes on and on and on. And this church would have many of those issues that they would hang on to. 
Because you fast forward years later now, and the church eventually succumbs to the influences of the ungodly culture around them. And yet Paul loves them still. They were spiritually stunted, they were immature, they were fleshly. And when, when this letter was written, Paul was in Ephesus at the time, and he, so he's getting this report, hey, all these things happening, we, we need a little bit of guidance and some help. And so this, this letter was really in response to those things that were play, plaguing that church at that time. And so Paul is giving instruction and counsel and correction to this carnal church. But you know what surprises me more than anything in this whole letter? Not once... Not once does Paul question their salvation. Okay, because we look at the church, the broken church, they're dealing with all these issues, and we say, they don't know God. I mean, what is happening to these people around me? I mean, look at the things that they're doing. They're hypocrites. They're, they're, they're partaking all kinds of these evil things. And yet, Paul, when he introduces a letter, he has no bad things to say about this church because I'm convinced that Paul saw this church through the lens of God that these people were actually redeemed in Jesus Christ. They actually came to a saving faith. And when you come to a saving faith in Christ, it is a promise God will finish the work that he started in you. And he had full confidence in faith that God would finish the good work that he started there in Corinthian. So this letter then becomes a representation, a power of the gospel in a godless culture. It's about the superiority of God's wisdom over man's wisdom. It is a letter written to correct the church regarding many, many of the flaws that they were dealing with at that time. Things like divisions, immature, immature attitudes, carnality, lawsuits, broken marriages, abuses of Christian liberties, which we're going to look at in more detail today the Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake in today, the misuse and neglect of spiritual gifts, jealousy, envy, worship service, acts of sexual immorality, acts of sexual immorality that went beyond the, the times. I mean, even the immoral people at that time looked at that church and said, that is immoral. They considered it to be bad. And so they missed the mark on just about every aspect of doctrine, including the resurrection. All this and more came under the scrutiny of this book as Paul was writing to this church. There could not have been a more immoral place than downtown Corinth. This is the backdrop. This is the backdrop. The fledging church of Corinth that Paul is writing to. Now with that, let's turn back to our text this morning and draw our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to start us a little bit down the line here. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 to 11, because this speaks really of Paul's heart towards this community. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and verses 9 to 11. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by... Your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Listen to this. Just underscore this. The brother for whom Christ died. Paul has such a tender love and care for this community. And his, his care is for those for whom Christ died. This is going to be the foundation, in fact, for the attitude for us to engage with people, both within the church and those who God has not yet taken into the church because he has called people and plucked them out before the foundation of the world. And our attitude to them is these are the people for whom Christ died. Remember John 3, 16. God died for the ungodly in order that anybody, anybody who would put their faith in him would receive eternal life. The invitation is open to anyone 
that would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that Jesus Christ liberated us? I mean, he freed us. He freed us from the shackles of sin, the demonic powers that presided over us at one time. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for the one who has died has been set free from sin. We have been set free from sin. For those of you who are dealing with guilt and life and sin, Jesus has set you free from that. His death has set you free from the very aspects of the evil things that are happening in your life, that you don't have to partake in those things anymore. That has been laid on Jesus Christ. The wrath of God has been placed on Jesus Christ. All those sins that you've dealt with, past, present, and future, have been laid on Jesus Christ. You have been liberated from the, 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 the shackles and the imprisonment of sin. Sin in Romans 3 is described as we're just so under the burden and tyranny. We are all under sin, it says, and not just scratching the surface. We are buried in it. And Jesus comes into our life and he reaches down and he grabs us and he pulls us out and he says, you are free now in Jesus Christ. And we are no longer enemies of God, but friends. And more than that, the Bible says we are children, children of God. I mean, this just blows my mind to think that even now, in my sin, God looks at me and he treats me as one of his own, that I am no longer considered an object of God's wrath, but rather an object of God's grace. This is the love that Paul has towards this community. And I tell you, we don't even measure close to that community here at Timberline. You all love the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, I can't tell you how encouraged I've been in your love for Jesus Christ and the way you treat one another. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. But you know what? We need to be reminded of this because we get so wrapped up into, I am so special and I am so good. And we start to compare my attitude and my actions towards other people's attitudes and actions. And I say to that, pooey! Because God has made you someone of Christ so that every action now that proceeds out of your mouth is not your own. Do you understand? It's Christ. It is Jesus. We have been made in the image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one now with God. Praise God. Amen. And more than that, He has liberated us from the law. Okay, it's one thing to be liberated from sin. He's liberated us from the law. We don't have the assurance of salvation because we can somehow perform our way into relationship with God. I mean, it's no longer about the rules. We don't have to concern ourselves with performance issues before God. I mean, even those who come to Christ have this issue. Now, now that I'm one in Christ, how can I go and follow all the Ten Commandments, right? And our focus becomes on follow the rules. Because if I want to please God, then I must follow all the rules. And I say, we've got it backwards. If you want to please God, know God. The rules follow. I mean, it's just a natural, I should say, supernatural outpouring of the Lord God when we come to a relationship with Him because we cannot perform our way into relationship with Jesus. He has liberated us from the law. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. He had to say that twice. Not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There is nothing, nothing you can do to please God apart from putting your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this blows my mind because God has made the formula so simple. If there's anyone in this room who has not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have not been liberated from sin. You have not been liberated from the law, and you are still in it. And there will come a day of judgment by which God will judge you by your works. And if you are judged by your own works, it will fall woefully short. But we are judged rather by the works of Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly on your behalf. When we go before the judgment seat of God, God doesn't judge me based on what I do. He judges me based on what the Spirit of Christ in me has done. And it's all good, brothers and sisters. It's all good. Amen. You have assurance of salvation because Jesus performed on your behalf. John chapter 8, verse 31, 32 says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. We have been freed. Mark, this is so important in the context of what we're reading this morning. We have been freed from the shackles of sin. We are no longer in sin in Christ. I'm not saying you don't sin. I'm saying you've been freed from that. And you have been freed from the law. Those two aspects are essentially important in the context of what's happening in Corinthians because your liberty in Jesus Christ, how are you now to behave based on those liberties that you've received in Christ? And to help us answer this question, we're going to be looking at four points this morning, and they are in your outline. Four points. We're going to be looking at the problem of food offered to idols. We're going to be looking at the pride of puffed up knowledge. We're going to look at the principle of love. And finally, we're going to look at the proposal. With all this, how are we now to respond? But first, the problem. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols. Okay, this is a question that the Corinthians had for Paul. Concerning food offered to idols. And it seems like an irrelevant subject to us, doesn't it? I mean, I, we don't have many people who go to the grocery store, they grab that, that nice steak, and they get to the front of the checkout line and say, hold up, before you ring me in, I've got, I've got one question, has this meat been sacrificed to idols? And they would look at you like, you're crazy, like, what are you talking about, right? I mean, obviously, we don't deal with that in our culture, but this was a huge point of consideration in that culture. Because while we don't have to deal with this specific circumstance, I think we're going to find that there's an application here that applies not just to meat sacrificed to idols, but all kinds of ideas, which we're going to get into. But let me help you understand why the Corinthians would ask this question about meat sacrificed to idols and why it was an issue. You remember Corinthian, we've already learned this was a very immoral city. And not only were they immoral, but they were polytheistic. Remember, they had multiple plurality of gods in that. But not only a plurality of gods, but a plurality of demons. They were polydemonistic as well. So they thought there were just all kinds of gods and demons, and they're just all over the place. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Those demons were all over the place. And so there were a few reasons why they would offer meat to idols. One is they wanted to please the God of their circumstance. 
So just imagine, like, you just opened up your own company, and you want it to go really well for you. So you're, you're going to take this, this nice meat, like the, the first of it, and you're going to bring it to the temple, and you're going to offer this meat to the God of prosperity. Because I want the God of prosperity to look favorably upon me as I'm opening this business. And so I'm going to offer now this meat to that. Another reason why people would do it is because they believe that evil spirits attach themselves to the meat. Because remember, they were all over the place, and so they would like go into the meat. And so you would take it to the priest, and you'd say, can you please cleanse this thing so that when I ingest it, I'm not ingesting demons. They, they really believe this. I'm not making the stuff. Like, they believe they would ingest the demons, so they would take it to the priest. The priest would cleanse it, and then they would eat the meat, knowing that the evil spirits had been removed. And then one last reason is it was just every, it was just social norm. Everywhere you went, meat was being sacrificed to idols in that city. So they'd used it to, to please the God of their circumstance. They used it to remove evil spirits, and it was just a normal social thing. And the, part, the, the process was a three-part process. One-third one of the animal would be burned up on the altar, as it were, to God. And so that would be devoted to the God of their circumstance. And then the second part would be going towards supporting the priesthood. So a third of that meat would go to the priest, and they would hang on to it. And then the last piece they would take with them. So you actually would only end up with a third of the meat. I'm like, that's a raw deal. Like, I, don't, I wouldn't want only a third of the meat coming back with me. You know, I'm like, dang, that was some good meat. <laughs> and so what the priest would do is they would take this meat... And then if they had leftovers, what would they do? They would sell it on the market. And so there was a lot of meat that was sacrificed to idols that were being sold on the market. And so you can imagine there were people, uh, as they're looking at their selection, the meat sacrificed to idols, there was an abundance of them because there was sacrifice taken on the place. So it was like dimes on the dollar if you wanted to buy that meat. So if you wanted to get a good deal on meat, buy the one sacrificed to idols, right? Or you just pay for the one that's just full uh, just it has its, just the animal itself, which is going to be a much, a much costlier option for you. And this type of thing was engraved, engraved in their culture. It was everywhere. Religious affairs revolved around it. Social affairs revolved around it. Sporting affairs revolved around it. Now imagine with me for just a moment. You've been partaking in all this idolatry. Paul, called by God, goes into the city, courageously preaches the gospel message, and you are awakened to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You realize now that you've been participating in pagan idol worship your entire life, and you finally see it for what it is, a satanic system of false gods in that community. And suddenly you're engulfed by the reality that every facet of this city is pagan idolatry because your eyes have been opened up to the realities of God's marvelous light. And you come bouncing out of that, and somebody comes up to you, and now they offer you meat sacrificed to idols. It would be completely appropriate for that person to say, forget that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I mean, don't you understand that Jesus Christ freed us from that sin? Why would I want to participate in that on the other hand, you had the more informed Christians, right, who knew all the knowledge things of the Bible, and they knew and recognized through the Bible that idols are nothing. They would say, what is the difference whether I eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? Because we know that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So now you have this tension that's been created among the church of God. People who say, I cannot participate in that because that is sin. And those who say, it's nothing, you can eat it, 
This is the reason why they asked the question of Paul, what do we do in the circumstance where there's tension that's been brought about? And Paul chooses to distinguish it between what he calls the stronger brother and the weaker brother in Christ. And here's a problem with these words, right? Because in our culture, I want to be the stronger brother in Christ, right? I mean, you don't want to be considered the weak one, but you have to understand that Paul doesn't view them any differently. He doesn't value one person over the other. In fact, he has a deeper care and love for those he calls the weak brother. Remember, he says, for those who die, that Christ died for. Those were the weak brothers that Paul was speaking of when he said that. And why is this important? Because this chapter introduces us not only to the specific subject of meat sacrifice to idols, but any gray matter that we deal with. And people cringe when we use this word gray. Because it's like, no, it's either good or it's bad. You, 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 you can't just hover this pendulum in the middle. Either you're going to tell me it's not good or you're going to tell me it's good. So people cringe when they think about gray areas because there are no gray areas, according to some people. This was very clearly a gray area in Corinth. Paul was not encouraging people one way or the other. He rather applied a principle. So how do we respond to these gray areas really is the subject of this chapter. And I want to define gray area just for the purpose so that we have a baseline. A gray area is a behavior attribute. Okay, It's a behavior attribute that can be spiritually neutral. Not necessarily spiritually neutral, but it can be, right? If I eat meat sacrificed to idols and that goes against my conscience, that's clearly a sin. But I can eat meat sacrificed to idols if it's not going against my conscience. So it can be spiritually neutral. Let me just give you a very simple illustration. Each one of you came into this room this morning, and you analyzed the room, and you chose the seat that you're sitting in right now. How do you know that your seat is the most honorable seat to God? Like, why is the front row so open? I mean, why are we so afraid of God's word that we have to be like all the way back here? You know, and obviously that's not the case. But I'm trying to make, I'm trying to make the point, the simple illustration that if, if we get so caught up in all the spiritual things and everything must be black or white, we're going to be rocking in the cradle position in no time just like asking God for help and everything that we do. There, I mean, there's just no end to it if that's the case. Some of the biggest debates in the church have been over things that we affectionately call the gray areas. Things in the Bible that are clearly wrong and explicitly stated we must avoid. And there are things that the Bible says we must do and we must move forward with that. And I'm not questioning those areas, okay? Because God does make clear what sin is. And God makes clear what things are honorable to God. And we should be pursuing those things as God's holy church, set apart, distinct for God's purposes. But there are items that go between the do's and the don'ts. And we have to comment about that because they are neither do's nor don'ts, not white nor black, and we call them gray. So what are some of the gray areas that we deal with in our culture? I spent five minutes uh, compiling a list of these things that I consider to be gray areas. Okay, now listen to this. And if this doesn't resonate with you, you are not a normal person, okay, in Christ. Um, I mean, it was only like a year and a half, two years ago or something, me and my wife were confronted with um, the subject of Starbucks, like, can, uh, I'm, uh, people are questioning whether I can drink Starbucks or not. I'm just like, what have we gotten ourselves into? <laughs> we ordered a coffee from Starbucks, you know, and so we were being questioned because of what Starbucks stood for, right? And so people were questioning my integrity as a Christian based on whether I drink Starbucks coffee or go to some other coffee joint that maybe doesn't have the same perspective. 
So here's the list. Is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols or is it not? That's the subject this morning. Or more generally, what is permissible to eat or don't eat? What to drink or don't drink? What to say or don't say? What to wear or don't wear? I notice not everybody in this room is wearing a long dress. Just saying. What to watch or don't watch? What to buy or don't buy? What to decorate your home with or don't decorate your home with? Whether to celebrate Christmas or not? Is Harvest Festival just a cover-up for Halloween? I don't know. Ooh, you went there so close to Reformation Day, Ozan. So close to Reformation Day. Which translation of the Bible to use or not? Whether to use a Bible with notes or not in it? Whether the notes should be attributed to a person or not? Which study Bible you use or don't use? Whether to play cards or don't play cards? Whether to dance or don't dance? What instruments to play in a worship setting or not? Yes, drums and electric guitars are considered evil in some church settings. Programs or no programs, committees or no committees, whether to raise your hand while you're singing joyfully to the Lord or keep them comfortably inserted into your pockets as a true Baptist. You know what I'm saying? I, I love getting my hands out there, you know, and I, I don't, you can judge me all day long. Whether to fast once a week or not, whether to take a Sabbath day once a week or not, piercings or no piercings, tattoos or no tattoos, how to disciple, uh, do you discipline your kids or do you not discipline your kids, do you eat organic, do you not eat organic, diet or no diet, play sports or don't play sports, yoga or no yoga, Zumba anyone, (laughs) Starbucks or no Starbucks, playing video games or not. Catechism or no catechism, creed or no creed, read the Bible first thing in the morning or not, get medical help or not, public school, homeschool, or private school, to grow a beard or not, uh, men only, men only, <laughs> okay, <laughs> to wear makeup or not, to wear a dress or not, women only, <laughs> Hat or no hat, head covering, no head covering, whether to share a list of gray areas in a sermon setting or not, you know, the letting, it just goes on and on and on. That was five minutes, okay? You're probably like swarming with other thoughts and ideas that might come to mind. Maybe somebody's confronted you about something that has questioned your integrity as a Christian that is a gray area. I don't know. But if you've been a, a Christian for any length of time, you've probably questioned at least one item that I just mentioned as a gray area. But it does beg the question, doesn't it? Who is right and who is wrong. How far does our Christian liberty take us? Well, I'm going to give you the answer up front. Your Christian liberty only goes as far as love. You draw the line at love. Paul says your Christian liberty is conditioned by your love for the ones for whom Jesus died. These are valuable children of God, and we are to treat them as such. And until we understand that, we're going to have negative attitudes towards people who don't do the things that that we like. Our goal is not to get people to come into our image. Our goal is to love one another in the respective areas of limitations and liberties that we have. So that leads me to point number two on your outline, which is puffed up knowledge, a pride of puffed up knowledge. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. This knowledge puffs up. And it, it's, it's interesting. Some people read that and say, see, knowledge is nothing. 
It's pointless to know anything because knowledge puffs up. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Is knowledge important? Absolutely knowledge is important. What's in mind here is knowledge without relationship, knowledge without love. In fact, it is critically important in the life of a believer that we know God because how can you walk with God if you don't know Him? And He's provided us His Word in order that we would know Him. So you must know God. But if you know something of God and it's not rooted in love, it's nothing. It's pointless and it amounts to cipher in zero. Christianity is not an anti-intellectual movement. That's the point I'm trying to make. In Colossians, Paul diligently prayed for that congregation to be filled with all kinds of knowledge and understanding. And in fact, in the introduction of Corinthians, he actually boasts in God of the knowledge that the Corinthians had. So he instructs us to be the new man, to put on the new self in knowledge. He tells Timothy to teach sound doctrine. And in Romans 12, he says, be renewed by the transforming of your mind through knowledge. Knowledge is essential But knowledge alone is not sufficient. Knowledge is essential, but in itself it is not sufficient. He even agrees with them in verses 4 to 6, right? He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And there is no God but one. The ESV really does a favor for us here. It puts in quotes the bumper sticker theology of that culture. What you see in quotes there is probably a lot of things that they threw out as bumper sticker theology. An idol has no real existence. Very common saying. There is no God but one. A very common saying. Lowercase gods, lowercase lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. See, Paul is not negating what they know, but he is challenging them in the area of love. The Corinthians had a puff-up problem in that culture. I mean, the the word used there, the puff-up word, it actually means puff-up, like, you know, and you just kind of walk like this is kind of what comes to mind. And they puff up, and they, it's used seven times in the New Testament. Six times of the seven it's used to describe the Corinthians. You think they had a puff-up problem in that culture? They absolutely had a pride problem. They might come off as arrogant to us. They're generally viewed as a spiritually elite and more righteous than thou art people. You know, have you met someone like that with that kind of knowledge but no love I mean, those are the kinds that are just argumentative in just about every way, and they feel like they have to be right in everything. And unless they're right, I mean, it's like knowledge trumps love in that circumstance. It's like hugging a porcupine. I mean, they have so many good points, but they hurt more than they edify. Like, don't be a porcupine, because nobody's going to want to hug you. I'm a hugger. <laughs> I'm revealing way too much right now, okay? I don't want to be a porcupine. I want people hugging me affectionately in Christ. And it makes a person proud because knowledge of that kind ends with me. It's all about me. And remember, it was just a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Nick said, we're not supposed to view the Scripture through the lens of what does this have to do with me? We're looking at Scripture through the lens of what does this have to do with God? Remember that? This kind of knowledge amounts to nothing. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we all are very familiar with this passage in verses 1 to 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You just sound like 
crazy. I just, I, I, I don't know how to say kind words. Um, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. You're nothing with all that knowledge if you have no love. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but I have not love, I gain nothing. You're just like without love, you're nothing. The foundation that he lays out for us is love. We know that knowledge without love is not true knowledge. And love, the reciprocation of that love without knowledge is not true love. Knowledge was always intended to help us grow, not to our own ends and understandings, but to edify the church and to get into a deeper, more intimate relationship with God. What Paul is trying to emphasize is that knowledge alone is not sufficient. It does no good to memorize a bunch of doctrine. If it's not without love, it must be coupled with love. Knowledge is not an end to itself. It always has a means to a greater end, to love God and to love one another in Christ. I have met many Christians that are just 18 inches away from being an effective Christian. What I mean by that is that like, everything is right up here. All you got to do is draw a line, you know? Like, make the connection between what you know and the affectionate love for God, and you become a very effective Christian. And I like to share this a lot. I mean, this is how God works in us. Know, love, serve. Okay, three points. I'm just, it's like those kids' things where you draw across the dots. Just draw from here to here and out to there, and you are worshiping. You are worshiping God pleasably. It just becomes a sweet aroma and incense to Him. It seems to me that with every truth that we have, there's always two extremes to distort that truth, you know, and the subject of Christian liberty is no exception to that rule. Let me just give you two examples. First, there's the legalists of our age. Those are the people who, who enjoy those lists. There are people who love that, you know, they're the rule followers, and they're just comfortable with institutional Christianity. Just put a big list of things for me to do or don't do, and I will be happy with that. And all they have to do is conform to that kind of thinking and they never know what it's like to live in the Spirit because they operate under strict legalism. That's another trigger word for some people. I'm, I, I hope that at some point in your life you have been accused as a legalist. Okay, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not saying that in the worst kind of way, but in the best kind of way because we are to serve and be holy and set apart for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that means we know the difference between what God says is wrong and what God says is right. And so there are some people who look at us just faithfully serving, and they just call you a legalist for whatever reason. But there are those who are true legalists. Like, in order for you to have favor with God, you must follow these rules. And that's the context by which I'm talking legalism. With a list of do's and don'ts, they can convince themselves that if they follow these rules, then they're practicing spirituality. That is not spirituality. There are churches that don't teach on principles. They just tell you what to do and don't do. And furthermore, they expect others to follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, then you don't live up to those spiritual standards. And therefore, you're not spiritual at all. The Pharisees were experts at this. I mean, I looked this up. They, they, have, they summed up God's law outside of everything in Scripture. And they came up with 613 laws that fall outside of what God's Word says. 365 negative commands, don't do this, and then 248 positive commands, do this. And by the time Jesus came, spirituality was defined as this heartless, arrogant brand of self-righteousness, and Jesus hated that. This is always going to be a false standard of righteousness. 
They'll abstain from areas, whether sinful or not, and look down on others in disdain if they are somehow more, quote-unquote, carnal than they are. These are the religious zealots who are always trying to attain their own terms of peace, right? Always wondering, have I done good enough to be spiritual yet? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8-9 to says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. There is nothing you can do. I mean, hear me on this. There's nothing you can do to please God apart from living a faithful life in Christ. I like how one man put it. Biblical Christianity is not about do this, do this, do, do, do. That's do, do. (laughs) Biblical Christianity is done. That's biblical Christianity. Jesus came in. He said, it is finished. There's no more work to be done. Put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. Remember, we have been liberated and saved from the law. And it's mocking the gospel. When I go to somebody and say, you must do this and don't do that, and I just lay out a bunch of rules, it's mocking the very thing that Jesus redeemed us from. The law. We are no longer under the burden of the law. We are under the loving embrace of the Father. And then on the other extreme, there are liberalists. Not liberals, liberalists. These are the people who come to the gray area and they look at the list of things they couldn't do before, but now they can do. And since they are freed in Christ, they just say, I'll do all of it. I'll just do everything all the time. I've got that freedom in Christ. There's no consideration for others. There's no consideration for how unbelievers might respond to the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. These people have a tendency to look down on the weak in contempt because of their limitations. They want to bring you weak people along to become more, quote-unquote, strong. This kind of knowledge mocks the gospel because, remember, Jesus liberated us from that. We are not to be living. He liberated us from sin. So if I, if I go into a, the room of a brother and I cause them to stumble in a way that goes against their conscience, then I am mocking the gospel. Because Jesus freed us from the shackles of sin. I don't know about you, but I'm guilty. I'm guilty of being thankful for people that are like me. And I'm indifferent to those who rub me the wrong way, you know? You know, that person in Christ who rubs you the wrong way, that person's sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for that person just as much as he died for you. And that person loves the Lord like you love the Lord. I mean, we question people's faith because they're not like us. And we say, you're not like you ought to be. You're not created in my image, is what we like to think. I think Paul would tell us, stop that. It creates division and rather say, I thank God. God, for the grace that he has given to you. And in doing that, we demonstrate an apostolic love for people. And more than that, we demonstrate a Christ-like love for our brother and sister in Christ. Okay, which leads me to my third point on the outline. And I know you all are worried because I haven't even gone through verse 1 yet. I'm going to ramp it up, okay, real quick. The, first, the third point on the outline, which is the principle of, of love. Okay, and this is in, in chapter uh, 8, verses 1 to 3, really. But I'm just going to repeat the last end of that. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. 
But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. If you love God, you are known by God. I love how he just flips this thing, this whole knowledge piece, right? You've got to know everything. He flips it around and he says, if you love God, God knows you. The very knowledge thing that we've been boasting about, God knows you. I think we ask the question wrong sometimes. We go to people and we say, do you know God? Do you know something of God? And I think the, the, the question really is, does God know you? Because if God knows you, then you are certainly one of His. Because it is like an intimate know. It's not just knowing something of a person that's used here. The word is gnosko. It means something of deep and profound relationship. God knows you if you love Him. And what does love do but consider other people? Look at verse 7 with me. He immediately turns it outward. However, not all possess this knowledge. Suddenly, the focus is not on yourself. The focus is on the brother and sister in Christ. Not all possess this knowledge. Right? And so, love considers other people. See, knowledge may say, idols are nothing, let's eat. Knowledge accompanied with love says, I choose not to eat, though I may, because my brother believes it is wrong, and I'll bow to his belief until he comes to a full and mature understanding of what God's Word says. The focus is on those for whom Jesus Christ has died. 1 Corinthians 8 says there is one overarching principle that governs all principles when it comes to the question of Christian liberty. Have you figured it out by now? Love. Love. We are instructed to consider our liberty only as far as love will take it. In other words, our liberty is conditioned by love. Paul says, love one another. If your liberties are not exercised by someone else, it is not our job and function to get them to exercise in the same way as us. It is to love one another. And it takes a considerable amount of wisdom to do this among the church. And I recognize that. And we have to ask the question, am I doing this to please myself or is it stemmed from faith? We live in a culture of rights and liberties and we say, that's mine. I don't want anybody to take that away from me. But when you look at Christian liberties as it's posed in the Bible, it always has in mind those for whom Jesus Christ has died. And I'm not saying just give in and cave into everything that everybody says. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying put others before yourself. Is this matter going to create strife? Is it going to tear somebody down? Is it going to lead them into temptation? Will it ensnare them and drag them to the very place that Jesus redeemed them from? Are you keeping Christ's redemptive work at the center of your Christian liberty? And how are you caring for those for whom Christ died? Chris Gorman at the NAB Northwest Conference mentioned that 75% of Gen Z, that's the generation that's rising up underneath us, they're considered spiritual. 75%, they consider, that's, that's a really good number. But here's where it gets really sad. Only 15% of them look to the church for answers. Why do you think that is? It's because we've prioritized apologetics and knowledge over relationship. I mean, we can't even be trusted because we just want to be right in everything. And Paul says, love. There seems to be this constant threat to the Christians in Paul's day and in ours that somehow we can look to Christ as a starting point from which we move on to the next place. You know, God has redeemed you, and as you walk along your faith with Christ, you say, I'll see you in heaven, Jesus. And then you, it's just up to you now to figure everything out. Like, this is how we sometimes view Christianity is that we're just we just constantly think Jesus and. Thanks, Jesus. I'll take it from here. Jesus and good works. 
Jesus and knowledge. Jesus and comfort. Jesus and, I'm just filling the blanks of all sorts. How do you grow spiritually? Not by going beyond Christ, but going to Christ. I mean, we, 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 we gravitate closer and closer and closer into relationship with Jesus Christ. Christian maturity can be summed up simply, just Jesus. Set your eyes upon Jesus and not extending beyond it. And now I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to, I'm going to make this very quick, okay? We're going to go to the proposal point. And Paul uses himself as an example. Starting in verse 8, he says, Food will not, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So whichever side of the coin you're on, it doesn't make any difference whether you eat or not because that's not the point is what Paul says. But take care. Now here's where it gets real. But take care. There's a little caution tape that comes up. It's a warning that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. I mean, this is one of the most, like, the biggest rebukes, but most gentle rebukes that I've, I've read in, in the Bible. He will be destroyed, it says. The brother for whom Christ died. The most gentle rebukes. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You want to know what sin is? That's where you find the sin. When your Christian liberties becomes a stumbling block to another brother and sister in Christ in a way that violates their conscience, you are in sin. And Paul is saying, don't do that. Winning their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. You're not just sinning against a brother. You're sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ, the one for whom he died. He's saying, I liberated that person, not you. Therefore, Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You see, it is not about Paul. It's always been about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. I mean, every message that we come up and preach is always about Jesus. You know, and this is what's so special about the worship setting is, is all of my motives, my thoughts, my intentions, everything that I just walk away from all comes back together on a Sunday morning. Okay, and I, can, I could not unwrap everything in this chapter, uh, which is why the t- shameless plug here, table groups, right, is just an amazing opportunity for you to unpack what has not been unpacked on a Sunday morning. So I, I pray that if you're not in a table group, that you would get plugged in. And if, if you, if you want to know how to get plugged in, come and see me or talk to any one of the leaders or elders in this community, and we will find a way to get you plugged into a table group. This is where you come in in a smaller setting and you worship God throughout the week. It's a way to, to come together and build relationships in a way to love one another in a way that doesn't happen otherwise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. There are no empty words in the Bible. Everything is just so full of grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ. You are, you are our gift that we've received by faith. Lord, there's not anything we can do to earn favor with you. You've done everything. And this is why we come together is to make Jesus preeminent. He's number one. There is no one else. There is no one else but Jesus Christ. Help us to portray and to be distinguished by love 
in the church, Lord, that we would serve one another and that we would serve those who don't know you. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.